1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. But we'd like to start by thanking our new patrons, John Jagerline, Michael Vasquez, Faith McNabb, Denise Pinto, Adam Brooks, Sharon Jenner, Paul Doyle, and last but definitely not least, our forgotten patron, Mikhail Guyhagen. Not only did we forget you the first time, we probably just mispronounced your name, but if you or any of our other amazing patrons would like to give us a correction of the pronunciation of your name, we would love to fix that. We seriously could not do this without you. Our patrons get access to our Patreon-exclusive Discord, where you can chat with us about the show or whatever else is on your mind. We have channels for spooky photos, movies, books, and even other podcasts. It's okay to talk about your other loves. We're kind of into it. We're also still making fun of Ian for that time he typed testicles instead of tentacles. So if you want to know more about Ian's testicles, you should become a patron and join us in our Discord. If you want in on movie nights, late night chats, and photos of adorable animals, then sign up for our Patreon, join the Discord, and dive in. Patrons also get bloopers, behind-the-scenes audio, and weekly updates on the show. Different tiers get merch like stickers, t-shirts, and coffee mugs, too. Sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash 13pod. Or just Google it, you know, like a normal person. Speaking of merch, check out the link to our merch store in the show notes. Before we get started, we want to tell you about another show called Hot and Bothered. Have you ever read Jane Eyre and thought, I have complicated feelings about this book? Have you never read Jane Eyre and thought, maybe now's the time? From the podcast Hot and Bothered comes a new season called On Air. The show is hosted by writers Vanessa Zoltan and Lauren Sandler, who both have long, complicated histories with Jane Eyre, starting when they were young girls who loved to read. Vanessa is a superfan. She even wrote a book about it. Lauren is more ambivalent. Each week, Lauren and Vanessa will deep dive into a chapter, or two, or three, of Jane Eyre through the themes of power and desire. As they work through the book, they'll ask themselves and us, whether Jane Eyre should stay in the canon of books passed down to the next generations of girls who love to read. If you miss English class, if it sounds fun to talk about feminism, mental health, and sex through the lens of a classic book, then this is the podcast for you. On Air premiered Friday, July 2nd. They have weekly episodes on Fridays. Subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our show notes for a link to the show. This month, we have a double feature for you. Our first story is The Latching by Mattia Heller. Mattia is a high school English teacher in a small town where strange and unusual happenings are part of an average school day. Her work appears in several literary magazines, and she is currently working on her second novel. You can find her at MattiaHeller.com. That's M-A-T-T-E-A-H-E-L-L-E-R rcom There will be a link in the show notes. We also have a story from Mason Morgan author of It's Your Turn to Wear the Mask. Check our social media for more info on Mason and how to find his work. And with that, on with the show. The Latching by Mattia Heller Lacey brings home a doll from the neighbor's house, and I toss it directly into the trash. I take one last look at that little cherub-cheeked baby as I tie the garbage bag closed. Then we jump in my car and stuff it into the first public receptacle I can find. We don't play with dolls in this house, I tell her, as she cries in the back seat. But all my friends have them. It breaks my heart, but not my resolve. I play with them at school, she says. This reminder makes my stomach lurch, but at least in her classroom, she's always supervised. When we get home, I head to the game closet. You have so many other toys to play with, I say, waving a jar of Play-Doh in front of her like a dog treat. I bet you could mold a baby out of this. But she shakes her head, tears cresting the corner of her eyes. We both stare at the game closet, wishing it could offer so much more. Mom, she asks, her voice now tiny and sweet, can you bake cupcakes for my birthday? Lacey. Her name comes out as one long exhale. My grown up powers crumbling against the desires of a kid whose sixth birthday is in two weeks teacher says I can bring cupcakes to school. We've talked about this. But why? Her face darkens, hands balled into little fists. She's too young to know why. But she's not too young to realize that she's the odd one among her friends. The one whose parents might be called overprotective in polite circles and crazy in others. I want to defer this one to my husband. It's Dan's rule about the birthdays, although I understand where he's coming from. It's just getting harder and harder to placate Lacey with excuses. I've told you, every family is different and we don't celebrate birthdays in this house. But I cringe at my own words. No kid wants to be different. Being the different kid makes you the target and not just for bullies. Isn't this what we've always tried to prevent? Go watch TV, I say, as I push her towards the flat screen. Some kids aren't even allowed to watch television in their houses. But I don't really know any families with this rule. Lacey glares at me with distrust and stomps off, pouting. When Dan gets home from work, I motion him into the bedroom and shut the door. My hands shake as I sit next to him on the bed. Lacey came home with a doll. His whole body slumps.
0: Oh, God.
1: I dumped it downtown.
0: Do you think it'll-
1: Don't even say it. He takes a deep breath, runs his fingers through his hair.
0: That was a close call, Sarah
1: but he doesn't look less worried. The furrowed brow, hand at the nape of his neck. That familiar stance reminds me of when we first met at group. We sat in a close circle in the municipal center gym, he across from me, rubbing the back of his head, frowning, hesitant to speak. Instead, he listened to the others, The ones who had been coming to group for years, like me. The ones with childhoods like ours. A demon possessed my mother. My house, it was haunted. I was cursed by a coven of witches. Our soccer coach came back from the dead. When it was my turn, I felt the heat of the words bubble in my throat. At group, Joe the facilitator makes you tell your story each time. A confession they say helps with acceptance. To this day, the words feel sticky in my mouth. For me, it was my doll. She came to life and murdered my family. Dan blinked once, as if taking it all in, perhaps thinking in the moment that he could have had it worse. And how about the new guy? Asked Joe. Dan cleared his throat. Ran his fingers through his hair again.
0: Hi, I'm Dan, a survivor.
1: Hi, Dan, the group chorused.
0: The boogeyman. He tried to kill me on my 10th birthday, and then every birthday until I turned 18.
1: Joe nodded. What happened then?
0: I finally killed the
1: bastard. I caught a wisp of a smile before it disappeared A curl at the edge of his mouth flickered a light across his whole face At that moment, I knew I'd do anything to make that man smile again It took a few more meetings, but I finally approached him by the coffee station I never much liked my birthday either, I said Always thought getting older was a crummy deal He looked at me Blank-faced for a moment, and my heart sagged. Maybe he wasn't ready to joke about his past. Yet, then, the trace of a smile.
0: Such a crummy deal. I was more of a G.I. Joe kid myself. Blame them for beheading my sister's Barbies.
1: A year later, a justice of the peace joined us at group, and we delivered our vows in front of that same coffee station. Every day after that was like living in a different story. We bought a cheery white colonial, read books by the fireplace, and fell into the cozy routines of marriage. But the night I told Dan I was pregnant, he cried with joy, and then suddenly, his fingers went through his hair.
0: What if what happened to us happens to the baby?
1: I had been thinking the same thing Imagining my child, soft as marshmallow fluff, a victim of her own love. I had loved Molly Dolly more than any of my other toys, more than my Cocker Spaniel, and even more than my baby sister. And I paid for it greatly, as Molly Dolly, one by one, took each of them away. Yet when Dan said those words, Acknowledged the fear I had clawing behind my heart. It only made me love him more. And it beat back those long talons. Now, sitting on our bed, all these years later, Dan's fear is as palpable as that night. I know it's scary.
0: We swore. When we got pregnant, no dolls, no birthdays.
1: I know, Dan. We're doing our best.
0: Your coworker gave Lacey that newborn last year.
1: We had burned that one in the fireplace. But the dolls kept coming. Relatives, friends, colleagues. Bestowing Lacey with gifts and hand-me-downs. And we got rid of them all. Waste disposal, fire. Once a burial at sea. These days, the stench of melting plastic is as comforting as lavender.
0: And then, your friend from the gym, she gave her the talking one. Jesus Christ, I couldn't get that pixie voice out of my head.
1: My fists ball up like my daughter's. Your birthday rule doesn't help much either. Even without parties, people still want to give presents. Presents beget dolls. He knows how both of our curses work in tandem.
0: Just stop sending her to the neighbors.
1: As if that could be any sort of cure for our predicament. Yet this is why we spend most of our time with other members from group. They understand us. They have their own rules, too. Always keep the hall light on. Never venture into the woods alone. Hold your rosary close to your heart. And don't bury anything that you don't want to come back. That evening, I call Joe from group. Lacey's been asking questions, I say, but she's too young to know the answers. Maybe it's the house, Sarah, he says, a tinge of fear in his voice. I told you nothing good can come of it. Joe grew up in a house haunted by poltergeists. His family was forced to flee when the walls began to bleed. His rule is, you never buy property, always rent in case you need to make a quick exit. It has nothing to do with the house, I say. I'm afraid if we tell her the truth, it will only give her nightmares, and we know what can come of nightmares. I'm thinking of Anna from Group who had a nightmare man kill her little brother in his sleep. The silence on the other end of the line tells me Joe is thinking of her, too. In group, we always talk about how we can't escape our past. And you and Dan getting together. It's like two for the price of one trauma. I frown. I really need to stop calling Joe for advice. I don't want the truth. I want exoneration. In the coming days, Lacey makes daily requests for a birthday party, or at least a tray of cupcakes for her classmates. Instead, we offer her trips to the local amusement park, the movie theater, the animal farm down the road. Her requests rise to a nasty crescendo like the cries of a million baby dolls. That's it, I tell Dan. I'm going to tell her the truth. Wednesday after school, I march up to her bedroom, hear her scuffling inside, and turn the knob. She's sitting on her bed reading a book with an innocent expression. Lacey, I sit next to her. We need to talk about your birthday. And dolls. It's okay, Mommy, she says. I don't want a doll anymore. I raise an eyebrow. You don't? She shakes her head vigorously. They're for babies. I should confess it all right now. Tell her mommy and daddy's dark history. Tell her none of it's her fault, but it could still be her future if she's not careful. Yet her sudden disinterest brings such a torrent of relief. My backbone crumbles. There will surely be a better time when she's older, when she can handle it. I kiss her on her forehead and leave her to her reading, ignoring the twinge in my stomach as I shut the door. Lacey's holding her book upside down. There are no more questions for the rest of the week. She doesn't mention her birthday or a baby doll. She's quieter than usual She stays in her room more, but she seems... happy. By the weekend, things start to get weird. I hardly notice it at first. Just a few small things out of place in my bedroom. My necklace is strewn on the sink of the downstairs bathroom. A pair of high heels are left in the middle of the living room. On Monday... I find papers scattered about the home office, knives missing from the knife block, long, ugly tears in my favorite dress. I confront Lacey, but she replies, I didn't do it. I hold the torn dress in front of her, like a murder weapon. It wasn't me, she says. Dampness grows under my arms, and it occurs to me that I've been asking the wrong question. I sit next to her on her bedroom rug. If it wasn't you, then who? I promise not to tell. A nauseating feeling creeps up my throat. Perhaps Joe is right. Have we inadvertently moved into a haunted house where poltergeists shift around our belongings and ghosts warn our children not to tattle? You have to tell me, Lacey. I say, you don't keep secrets from mommy. But Lacey scrunches up her face. She's stubborn like her dad and she won't reveal more. The next day, the morning of her birthday, I'm cleaning her room when I notice a bit of yellow fabric stuffed between the box spring and the mattress. I tug it out and the thing inflates back to life plastic body blooming to its original shape curls just needing a little fluffing dress the color of sunshine a fucking doll Lacey is sitting at the kitchen table eating her Cheerios I fling the damn thing in front of her as if it's a dirty magazine where did you get this a quiver of a bottom lip where a solitary whole grain O sticks. And then she bursts into tears. Teacher told me I could borrow it for my birthday week since I can't have cupcakes. I collapse into the kitchen chair, put my hands on my chest, try to slow my galloping heart. Damn that fucking teacher. I send Lacey to the living room with my iPad. Dan and I put the doll in an old Amazon box, wrap it in packing tape, and rest a set of dumbbells on the lid. We call Joe again, together. You can't get rid of it so easy now. Why not? Dan asks, but surely he knows. If it's fucking with your stuff, the little shit's been in your house too long. It's already latched to Lacey. Throw it away, and it'll find its way back and you sure as hell can't return it to her school. Can't we burn it like the others? Dan's hopeful, but I remember what had happened when my father tried to burn Molly Dolly. She grinned at us atop the wood pile like the devil on his throne. And eventually, the fire burned out. There's another way, but you're gonna hate it. Tell us. Joe pauses. Sarah knows what to do. She's always known. My chest heaves, ready to deny it. If I'd known what to do, we wouldn't be in this mess. If I'd known what to do, I would have saved my family. And then a memory surfaces something I'd buried, even though I know what happens when you bury things. I'm all alone. I'm at a playground, and I'm about to do something awful. We're calling it an unbirthday party. Lacey is so excited that in the days leading up to it, she barely mentions the doll, which I lock in a different place around the house every time it escapes. Instead of receiving presents, we make it clear on the invitation that Lacey will be the one giving the gifts. We take her to the store to select the board games, stuffed animals, art supplies, and dress up clothes that she will bestow on her friends. Dan and I wrap each in a similarly shaped box, so no one can tell what's in any of the packages, including us. We try to spare ourselves the guilt this way. And then, carrying it from the fire retardant safe with baking gloves, Dan places Lacey's doll in an identical box and wraps it up in polka dot paper just like the rest. If another child falls in love with the doll, I told Dan, the doll might latch itself to that kid instead. I know this will work. It did for me. After Molly Dolly tore through my family, I left her at the top of the slide at the playground, and I watched from the parking lot as a little boy scanned the swing set for her owner, and then with an adoring smile, swiftly stuffed her into his backpack. The morning we hung up with Joe, Dan said, No way. We are not going to inflict that trauma on another child. We would not be responsible for the violence that could ensue. But we didn't have another idea. And I reminded him that the doll would surely orphan our daughter eventually, just as Molly Dolly had done to me. It was either our families or another's. We've had our share of suffering, I said. We deserve to be happy. So Dan sets out all the gifts, and we prepare for Lacey's unbirthday. Three days after Lacey's actual birthday, ten of her classmates skip around our yard eating tiny pink cakes and drinking orange soda from fancy teacups. My heart swells to see how many of Lacey's classmates and their parents love our little girl. All this time, we worried that they saw her as strange in a way that would only lead to the misery and heartbreak that Dan and I are all too familiar with. And yet, with only two days' notice, they made themselves available to attend her party. And the party is a huge success. Lacey is nothing but teeth all day, grinning and laughing as I've never seen before. "'It's my unbirthday,' she keeps repeating." I'm six years old. The kids don fancy dress-up hats and bat croquet mallets like golf clubs. And once it's time for her guests to leave, Lacey has already fallen asleep on the couch out of sheer, joyful exhaustion. Don't forget your unbirthday gift on the way out, I remind each child. All the packages lay in the front hall. And one by one, the guests grab a present And slip out the door As they go I feel a shameful pleasure Imagining each of them Tearing open the box To find a blonde-haired Green-eyed doll Smiling at them There's one gift And one child left A toe-headed little girl In a yellow dress The girl I realize now Is nearly the doll's twin Another memory rises, Christmas morning, the smell of cinnamon buns, the satisfying tear of wrapping paper, the flash of brown curls, glittering blue eyes, just like my own. I swallow. I'm certain of just how deeply this child will fall in love. Thanks so much, Lacey's mom, she says clutching the present. I had the best time. The girl is gone just as the tears breach my eyes. Lacey is still asleep on the couch as we clean up the kitchen. That went well. Dan says it as if he's talking about a PTA meeting. As if we haven't passed off a horrible curse to one of Lacey's classmates. And then comes the knock on the door. It's soft, like the knuckles of a small hand. I freeze, shake my head. No, it can't be. Dan gives me a reassuring smile. One of our friends forgot something. He peers through the peephole and then steps back, face white, hand through his hair, the same look, the same haunted look as the day I first met him. Who is it, Dan?
0: I thought, I thought if we...
1: He steps farther away from the door as the gentle knock grows louder and louder.
0: I thought that it
1: Dan collapses to his knees, and I move to the pacing myself to see those horrid blonde curls. That sickening yellow dress. But instead, i met with the black eye of something large and misshapen. The front door is ripped from its hinges as Dan shouts,
0: It was an un-birthday.
1: It is your turn to wear the mask by Mason Lyle Morgan. Tonight, I decide to look. I'm gripping the revolver, slicked in sweat, as I crawl to the window. The cold air pricks my skin. There's someone outside watching me. A body with bloated hands and bloated feet, a head too big for its shoulders, its face frozen in a contorted grin. It's saying something, but I can't make it out. The voice is muffled beneath the thing's unmoving face. It sounds like a threat. Come here, I imagine it saying, it is your turn to wear the mask. when I gather the courage to peek my head above the windowsill, there's nothing there. Just my own pale, translucent reflection. Despite this, anxiety remains lodged in my chest. Despite what I can see, what I can hear, a part of me thinks I'm being watched, knows I am being watched. Rain patters against the glass. And I resign myself to staying awake. There will be no more sleep tonight. This happens more nights than I'd care to admit. Those unblinking eyes. Those inflated extremities. It watches from beyond the window or inside the closet or wherever I decide to lay my head and pray for sleep. No matter where I go, there it is. In the motel room, I hear it giggle behind the shower curtain. In the park, I watch its shadow dance with moonlight. In the sanctity of my own home, it violates everything I once deemed safe. I don't have the full memory The images come in patches. My hands gliding along the waiting rail. It's textured paint rough against my fingertips. A voice I don't recognize saying something I can't remember. Waves of people on their way or coming back. And somewhere along the line, my hand loses contact with my mother's. I become adrift in the sea of bodies. There's a shuffle of hands and faces. Amid one of them is the face. What I can never decipher. Why me? Was it an opportunity or was it something else? Back then, I didn't know to fear it. It was simple, cartoonish. The plush smile of a theme park mascot the face of the park's creator blown out of proportion. A stretched smile, wide eyes, an oversized cowboy hat. Something meant to charm the kids, to summon smiles and laughter. What I didn't understand was, there was someone inside. It said, follow me. It said, you can trust me. The hardest part of having a closet near your bed is deciding to leave it open or closed when you sleep. This is necessity. This is a deliberate choice. I struggle with it every night. If I choose to leave it open, I expose myself immediately to those who watch from it. I make myself vulnerable, incapacitated. The moment I close my eyes, they have control. But the opposite, Closing the door may be worse. I never know if it's empty or not. The safety the barrier of the door provides is two-faced. It hides me, but it hides them, too. If I want to know for sure, I have to go to the door and open it. I have to go to the closet door and stop breathing long enough to twist the handle and pull. I have to bring myself to the point of fear. I have to go down to the basement, or investigate the abandoned house, or pull open the curtain, or check under the bed, or peek my head above the windowsill. All the things we know we shouldn't do. Because of the two, knowing and not knowing. One is worse. But there's a third thing they leave out. The third option. The worst of them all, knowing and not seeing. When the conviction overrules the evidence, when the hairs on your neck stand straight up and all the biology formed through time screams, there is someone behind you. But you look and no one's there. You look again, the calm never comes. You look again, the hairs never settle, and it dawns on you as it has me. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Some things, the more you try to explain them, the less sense they make. It's everywhere. How the length of a second is relative. How there are infinite numbers between zero and one. Some things just are, despite explanation. I know how it sounds. I'll try to keep it simple. In my memory, there's a room. It's full of the same face. Rows of mascot costumes. Lifeless. Unmoving. I remember thinking that they were all dead. Then, I'm in another room. With more people the mascot who's been leading me gives me to the other people. Like I'm a package being delivered, property exchanging hands. I know this is a long time ago, but memories exist in the present. It's all here with me now. I can feel it like needles in my spine. The other people, whose faces are blurs, take me to yet another room. This one with a strange enclosure in the center. The whole room is a big circle. They bring me to the center of the circle and they put me in a chair, strap me to a chair. The men in that room, all of them wore suits, not hazmat or isolation, business suits with ties. One of them had a cowboy hat on, just like the mascot. I remember that vividly, the cowboy hat. They use words, but I don't hear them. They point at me. Then at the mascot. It comes closer and stands over me. That huge face. It reaches for its head and begins to take it off. In this moment, I first feel the terror that will haunt me the rest of my life. The unveiling, the point of fear. But then I can't remember. I remember the terror the build-up. But the climax never arrives. I'm left perpetually hanging, adrift in the air, doomed to ruminate for years to come. The man with the hat smiles at me and points to the room full of costumes. Right now, thinking back, I don't know if he said something to me. Maybe what's heard doesn't extend as far back as what's felt. Maybe it's just that I'm forgetting. It was a long time ago. It's been a long, long time. But what I feel is this. The costumes in the other room, those rows of mascot heads and bodies, they belong to me. Or rather, I belong to them. Next thing I know, I'm back with my mother. I'm holding her hand. For some reason, I'm not scared. I'm not crying. Instead, I feel as if pulled from a dream. As if lifting from a daze. Like coming out of surgery. A day at the dentist. She doesn't seem upset that I was gone. In fact, It doesn't seem like I was gone at all. There's ice cream in my hand. The wind is sweeping across my face, my hair. I have to shield the sun from my eyes. A part of me wants to believe it's a falsehood or that it was part of some ride I was too young to comprehend. A big part of me, most of me, really. That would make this all so much easier. because of what I saw next. I know what I saw. I've thought about it for decades. I haven't been able to think of anything else. I'm thinking about it now. I see a man walking in the other direction, coming my way. In each hand, he's holding the hand of a little girl. I'm caught up looking at the man's suit. It looks like the one I'd seen in the room. They pass on the left, and when they do, I notice the girls for the first time. They both look the same, like twins, or copies. They look familiar, strikingly familiar. It takes a moment to register. My mother is saying something, pointing at some attraction. The face, the face on those girls, It's the same one I see in the mirror. The face in the closet. Inside the costume. It's my face. It's me. Tonight, thinking through everything, trying to put the pieces together again for the millionth time, I can't eat. My fingers won't stop shaking. There's a layer of dread over my apartment, over my life, a constant reminder that, ultimately, I cannot tell if I am real, if I am the original, or if I am one of the copies. And if I am real, isn't that worse? That I can't tell? What would the others have to say about that? Surely, they would be jealous of my supposed freedom. I know what I would want if I were one of the copies. I'd want the life I thought was my own. I'd want to creep into my house one night, hide in the closet or outside the window, and wait for the perfect moment. I would disrobe my costume, sneak over to the real me, and stuff her inside it. I would replace her. I would take my rightful spot as a real, living person. There is someone behind you. I'm halfway dressed and walking towards the parking lot before I realize what I'm doing. My hands turn the keys in the ignition. It'll be a long drive, but I know the alternative is impossible. I can't sit and wait and pretend. I can't not know what's a few hours compared to a lifetime. It's the easiest decision I've ever made. As I'm pulling out of the parking lot, I expect my anxiety to dissipate. It does not. It grows. I realize this is me opening the closet. I'm doing what I shouldn't. I'm driving to the point of fear and I can't stop myself. It's hours into the drive. The interstate is lonely under all the stars. So many stars. They remind me of the tacky white stars I had adhered to my ceiling as a child when I was younger, and it didn't matter if the stars were fake. I couldn't tell the difference. Growing up in the city, I never saw real ones. Maybe that's how you know something is fake. Once you see the real thing, you can tell. But what if you never saw the real thing? Would you even know the imitation was fake? My mind lingers in that old bedroom. If anyone were to know, it would be her. I need gas anyway. I pull over and pump some into the tank. I ask the clerk where the phone is. She hands over her cell and smiles. I'm shaken, I don't know why. I step to the back of the store and dial my mother's number. It's late, but she's probably awake. It rings, once, twice, voicemail. I wait for the beep. I don't know what I'm doing, I confess. I thought maybe you would want to hear my voice again. It's been a long time, I understand, but... Someone shuffles into the store and greases over to the beer. I tuck in. I suppose I want you to know that I'm finally ready. I'm on my way now. But I had a question about something. A voice picks up. Hello? Who's calling so late? Mom, I say. It's me. Uh Huh? Who? I have something I need to ask. Remember that theme park? Do you remember that day we went? There's some sort of chatter on the other end. Voices in the background. I don't think you have the right number. I need to ask, did I ever leave your sight? Did you lose me, even for a minute? I'm going to hang up. I have to know, Mom, please. Am I one of them? Don't call here again. The line clicks. It goes dead. how much do I remember of yesterday and the day before it? What determines what is stored in memory and what is discarded? How much of my life do I really remember? I pull off the highway and onto an access road paved in dirt. There's nothing, no one out here. A panic resurges in my chest when I see the dilapidated sign announcing the park's lead in drive. I take a right and make my way down the mud caked path. Sitting here in the abandoned lot, looking at the chain link fence surrounding the park, I'm fighting the urge to pass out. My head swims. I brace my hands against the steering wheel and count my breaths. It doesn't help. I open the door and stick my head out and vomit. The smell of rust floods my nose. I don't want to be here. I would do anything not to be here. I take the flashlight and the revolver out of the glove box and head toward the gated entrance. Everything is covered in moss and graffiti. I make sure the gun is loaded I push deeper in, I step over cracked concrete and weeds spilling through it, loose bits of trash scatter in the wind at my feet, an aching loneliness haunts the park, years of neglect wrinkle every surface, and yet, I feel the eyes watching me more than ever before staggering gaze hides behind the shattered windows and crumbling architecture. Goosebumps cover my skin. In the distance, I see the remains of a dried-out fountain. I remember the center of the park. I'm crossing to the fountain when out of the corner of my eye, I see something move. I grip the revolver hard enough to leave indentations in my palm. I'm shaking again. I shouldn't be here. I should leave. Crossing to the corner where I saw the movement, I'm stricken with an overwhelming feeling of dread. I know what I'm about to see. I know where I'm being led. I come to an alley between two corroded buildings, both of which are too barren to make out their original intention. Empty shelves lie knocked on their sides, bent and dented. Shards of glass litter the floor. The space-themed paint job of the interior is splotched with decay. Insulation bulges from sodden ceiling panels. In the back of the alley is a door leading to the employees-only building of the park. The wind blows it open. Unlocked. Waiting. What am I supposed to do? I can't do anything else. I walk through the doorway. I approach the point of fear. The restricted section looks very much like the rest of the park. Minus the themed decor Barren, cracked concrete and the nature assuming its place Part of it seems to have been a lounge Judging by the rotted wood bar and overturned bar stools Dangling from one of the two doorways in the room is a metal placard I pull it down with ease and wipe off the collected dust Most of it is rusted over My heart lurches in my throat. Costuming. I'm here. I'm here. Somewhere in the trenches of the room is the answer. The answer to end all questions. My hands are shaking again. I feel dizzy. Out of balance. I grip the doorframe and steady myself. I stagger into the room. A locker room. Most of the lockers are torn open and wrapped in graffiti. It's not long. It's a short room with a hall on the right. An L-shape. The beam on my flashlight stutters as I approach the corner. I hit it once. Twice, waiting for the beam to brighten. In the back of the corner, I see it. It's faded and covered in dust, and bits of it have been chewed away by insects, but there it is. The costume. It lies dead in the back, its head propped against the wall. So, you finally came. I approached the suit, one step at a time. Gun raised, flashlight trained. That goddamn smile. That goddamn stupid hat. I perch the flashlight in my teeth while I grip the head. I twist. The mechanism unlatches. The head is loose in my hands, ready to be removed. The unveiling. I can barely breathe. I take off the mask. And that's when everything changes. It's been so long since I've been back. I know I have a home somewhere. But I've never been. A woman who isn't me lives there. She's lived there for a long time. Far too long. And now I know where she lives. I know where I can find my home. I pull the keys from the pockets. I take the gun, the flashlight, just in case. The car is easy to find. It's the only one in the lot. The night is bright with stars. It is a nice night. I drive the limit the whole way back. The drive is pleasant. By the time I get to the house, the sun is peeking over the horizon. I open the door. I go upstairs. Here's where she sleeps. I know where she sleeps. I tuck myself into the closet and close the door. She'll be here anytime. Waited so long. I can wait a little longer. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Thirteen. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing, and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This month's stories were The Latching by Mattia Heller, narrated by me, Brooke Jeanette, Dan was Ian Epperson, and It's Your Turn to Wear the Mask by Mason Morgan, narrated by Brooke Jeanette, editing and sound design by Liz Walker, music by Kayla Britchie, with assistance from Bridget Howard and Ian Epperson. Our producer level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Wiley Caudill, and Paul Doyle. Thank you so much for your support. Our Patreon partners get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading merch, bloopers, behind the scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on social media Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at some version of 13pod or Pod13. Just look for the logo. We're trying to beef up the social media activity, so seriously, come say hi. We'll talk back. We'll have links in the show notes. You can also find a link to Hot and Bothered in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes, too. Bridget Howard has a doll for you. Thanks for listening. See you next month.